Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 188. Now that we're finished up with the Richard Case Nagel miniseries, it's time to get on to other things. I know I promised you that we'd pivot to Oswald and the CIA, and we're going to do that. But I'm sorry, we're not going to do it on this particular episode. Every once in a while, I just have to take another wander after a wander. And so today's wander is one of those crazy, zany, I would call him a witness. His name is Raymond Brochiers, and he's the subject of today's episode. I guess you can call this another one of those you-can't-write-this-kind-of-stuff episodes. And I guess we still are technically in the zone of the garrison investigation when we include this particular character. But I think it's a wander worth taking, and I hope you'll take it with me. And so, without further ado, let's listen to episode 188 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. One of the most famous of the lesser-known characters in the Garrison investigation is the Reverend Raymond Brochiers, also known as Earl Raymond Allen. Stephen Jaffe, who worked for Jim Garrison in the New Orleans DA's office, conducted a series of four interviews in July and August of 1968. The first two were in Long Beach, California, and the last two being conducted in New Orleans. Brochiers was in ordained minister in the Universal Life Church, founded in 1960 by a Dr. Kirby J. Hensley of North Carolina, a man who apparently could neither read nor write. Brochiers was active in doing civil rights work for the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, after a conviction for sexually molesting a minor in East St. Louis, Illinois, in 1964, and serving six months in prison, He found work in a carnival for a short time, and eventually, to escape my problems, as he put it, he said that he went down yonder to New Orleans in 1965. He was 30 years old at the time, and almost penniless, and he would find initial shelter in a hotel near the Continental Trailways bus depot, a seedy location at best. And as Vincent Bugliosi tells the story, it was so cheap, it had no name. And shortly thereafter, he met David Ferry at a homosexual bar in the French Quarter. An admitted homosexual, Brochiers says Ferry spent several nights in the hotel with him and gave him handouts to live on. Brochiers said that Ferry, in time, would confide to him about Ferry's part in the conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. In Vincent Bugliosi's telling of this story, he emphasizes that Ferry would only tell this story 
to brochures at moments when he was intoxicated. According to brochures, Ferry told him that on the afternoon of the assassination, he, Ferry, was waiting in Houston for two of the assassins to fly in from Dallas. And then he was to fly them to South Africa, which did not have an extradition treaty with the United States, so they'd be safe there. But instead, these particular two assassins, who had shot Kennedy from the grassy knoll, decided to fly on their own from Dallas straight to Mexico. According to the story that Ferry told Brochures, Carlos, the pilot, ended up crashing the plane near Corpus Christi, and both of the assassins perished. Brochures interviewer Stephen Jaffe told Brochures in a later interview that his office had checked and learned that no plane had crashed around Corpus Christi on the day of the assassination. That seemed to change the way the story was subsequently told. Brochures said that David Ferry introduced him to Clay Shaw in late August or early September of 1965 at Dixie's Bar, a homosexual hangout in the View car, and that he saw him with Ferry on two other occasions on the streets of the French Quarter. According to Bouliosi's telling of this story, Ferry told Brochures that the main people behind the assassination were Clay Shaw, Hale Boggs, if you can believe it, the U.S. representative from Louisiana, Kent Courtney, a financier from New Orleans, and Richard C. Louchley, a businessman from Collingsville, Illinois. Oswald, Ferry told Brochures, did not kill Kennedy, but was one of the best lays I've ever had. Yes, he said Oswald was one of the best lays he had ever had. Brochures would appear on a local television show in Los Angeles on July 8, 1968, and state that David Ferry admitted being involved with the assassin. There's no question about that. Brochures would also make a statement in New Orleans in late 1965 that President Johnson, who was responsible directly or indirectly for the assassination of our beloved president, should be put to death. That resulted in his being arrested for threatening the life of the president and being committed to the Gulfport Psychiatric Hospital, a federal mental institution. And he was there for close to half a year. By the way, whatever you think of Johnson, the feds don't mess around when you make statements like that. Vincent Bugliosi's observations about Raymond Brochures are pretty brutal. And he further states that Garrison didn't dare call him to the witness stand because his credibility was so, as Bugliosi puts it, transparently non-existent. But with Brochures, either Jaffe or another member of Garrison's staff felt obligated to write on the very transcript of the August 8, 1968 interview of Brochures the following handwritten notation. And I quote, even if everything Brochures recalls is truly what Ferry told him, it is apparent that Ferry is giving him some garbage from time to time, to say the least. Again, according to Bugliosi, that was handwritten and documented on a memorandum from investigator Stephen Jaffe to Jim Garrison on August 8, 1968. 
Well, let's back up and tell you a little more, perhaps a little more objectively, about the background of Raymond Brochier's. As what you just heard was the story from Vincent Bugliosi's perspective, as it is told in his book, Reclaiming History. Some of the basic facts about Brochier's are this. He was born in 1935, so he was about 28 at the time of the assassination, and about 30 years old, as you heard a moment ago, when he met David Ferry in 1965. He was not around or present in Ferry's life in New Orleans in 1963 during the period of the purported assassination plot, nor was he engaged in any of the purported plotting. Although it should be noted that research surrounding when exactly he met Ferry is inconsistent in the literature, with some suggesting that he didn't meet Ferry until after the assassination. But you'll hear in his testimony under deposition, sworn testimony under deposition to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, that in fact, he had met Ferry prior to 1963. He was, at best, someone who came into David Ferry's life more prominently after the assassination, and to whom Ferry would eventually confide in. The details, that is of Ferry's involvement in the assassination. Brochiers would die at the age of 47 in 1982. I didn't see anything in the research indicating cause of death. It might be easy to speculate here, but I won't. He was a gay Pentecostal evangelist preacher, and he was an activist who founded a group known as the Lavender Panthers, which was an armed self-defense group for the LGBT community in San Francisco, active from the summer of 1973 until the spring of 1974. He also helped organize the first Gay Pride March in San Francisco in June 1972. And he also founded the Orthodox Episcopal Church of God. Not much is readily available about his early years, but after enlisting in the Navy in the 1950s, Raymond Brochiers was discharged for a head injury. He enrolled in the Pentecostal Robert E. Lee Bible College in Cleveland, Tennessee in the mid-50s and became a traveling preacher in the early 1960s. His advocacy efforts included topics such as gay rights and civil rights. And you will hear snarky remarks about his credentials as an ordained preacher. Well, Robert E. Lee Bible College in Cleveland, Tennessee, has been around since 1918. And in more recent years has evolved into a full-fledged accredited university known as Lee University. And one of the colleges that currently exists within the university is the College of Religion. So like it or not, at least some of his credentials in the area of divinity training were from real institutions. Although I'm not sure about the mail order divinity school that he was later associated with out of Fort Lauderdale. In the years after his time in New Orleans, Brochiers moved west to Long Beach, California, and he established a ministry and community center on Skid Row designed to improve the quality of life for people living below the poverty line. There is no doubt that Brochiers was a character. You know, when I say you can't write this stuff, well, he was one of those kind of characters. 
The late 60s and early 70s were a dangerous time politically for homosexuals, and brochures picked up on a lack of protection from law enforcement. As I mentioned earlier, when he was in California, he created the Lavender Panthers. Obviously, that's a name derived from the more active and militant Black Panther organization. Lavender Panthers was formed in July 1973, following a violent attack outside of Brochier's community center, Helping Hands, an attack that left Brochier's himself unconscious. Brochier's was active in social causes that particularly affected the gay community, and he was controversial. That brought a certain element of violence his way in the day against those movements. Brochier's himself was threatened repeatedly in the form of letters and occasionally was also the victim of violent actions, all of which he regularly seemed to report either to the San Francisco Police Department or the FBI. In fact, the FBI had a file of some 300 pages of reports and documents on him, which includes communications between brochures and various special agents, as well as a large volume of documentation related to the threats he received. There were newspaper articles with attached scribbles of hate speech and clearly explicit threats that were regularly mailed to brochures. At one point, he was forced to have a shotgun handy there in his office as a visual deterrent to forces in the nearby neighborhood. Newsweek dubbed him the most dangerous gay man in America as a moniker for his armed tactics to protect himself and his community. At the very least, he was a vigilante and perhaps quite necessary in the environment he found himself in at that moment in California in the late 60s and early 70s. Look, I'm not condoning violence, mind you. I'm just making an observation about the times and the social friction that truly existed. You see, gay rights as a political issue in this country was just really starting to heat up. And of course, places like California in general, and particularly San Francisco, were ground zero when it comes to battlegrounds related to this topic. Brochures was a flamboyant character under any measure, and fortuitous enough for all of us who listen to the podcast, there are two well-preserved audio tapes that are available to us where we can hear him talk and get to know him a little and listen to what he said in his own words about what David Ferry said and what David Ferry told him of the assassination plot and what else he knew that might be pertinent. One of those tapes was recorded under pseudo-oath by an investigator of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Steve Jaffe. Jaffe had worked for the Garrison investigation back in the 60s and had been involved in Garrison's original pursuit of brochures as a witness. Then, later, for the HSCA, Jaffe caught up with brochures in California and made the taping on the evening of May 18, 1977. We're going to listen to the HSCA tape in its entirety. Unfortunately, the HSCA tape is quite lengthy. And because the sequence is first that brochures appeared on the television show, we'll include that today in episode 188 and then present the HSCA testimony in episode 189. And as I said, we have included 
the audio portion of an interview that Raymond Brochiers did on the Stan Borman Show on July 8, 1968, appearing on the show along with Jeff Mann, one of his sidekick-ordained ministers. The entire interview is available on Jeff Litwin's website on the Trail of Delusion, and it's also on YouTube. The clips are presented here to give you a better sense of who he was, and I dare say that even Garrison decided that it would not be a good idea to put him on the stand at the Clay Shaw trial. Some of what you will hear on this tape is, to say the least, more than a little out there. Was he telling the truth about what David Ferry told him? Maybe. Maybe not. Was Ferry telling him the truth? Maybe. Maybe not. Listening to this part of the tape may influence how you feel about this witness. So don't leave the episode too early. The whole thing feels a little hokey and circus-like. Not very credible, in my opinion. But who knows? Brochures never wrote a book. He never capitalized in any substantial way regarding this story of David Ferry. Yes, he appeared on a few shows. I'm not sure if he was paid or not. Despite this, though, sadly enough, Brochures sort of ended up in the same category as a Charles Spiesel all of a sudden espousing things that make you wonder if he was all there. Some of that comes out on the show interview, as I mentioned, but I won't spoil it, as I want you to listen and make your own decision. Sadly, in another way, there is an underlying general disdain for witnesses like brochures. It's a disdain that permeates the psyche of researchers like Vincent Bugliosi, who point to him as, being a homosexual. And the point I'm trying to make here is what came with that labeling, a general stereotype in the day that they were hiding fundamental things about their life, hiding from everyone else, which by definition then labeled them to many as liars, regular liars to everyone else on a daily basis. And then, thus, the leap of faith is that they must also be pathological liars on other important issues. And thus, they were not to be trusted as telling the truth about a lot of things, and especially about things like the Kennedy assassination. I know that logic is convoluted, but it's true. That's the way people thought back then. And I know I am stating the obvious here, but I feel that I need to. We're always looking for some level of historical context when we go back in the time machine with all of these witnesses. You see, back in those days, there was just much distrust of what someone gay would say. Many in society in those days automatically discounted and gave less respect and less credibility to gay people. And then, when you add a truly bizarre set of lifestyle facts to it, such as those of Raymond Brochier's, well, it didn't take much to discredit a man like him. And that is exactly what happened to Raymond Brochiers, deserved or not. Well, one thing is for sure about the things that Garrison told us. And to roughly paraphrase him, you hardly ever find bank presidents at the scene of a murder. Raymond Brochiers was no bank president. But there's only one real question we have to answer here. 
and it doesn't have anything to do with his lifestyle or sexual preferences or proclivities or propensities. It has to do with what we think came out of David Ferry's mouth. So was Raymond Brochier's telling the truth about what Ferry said? Was Ferry himself telling the truth to Raymond Brochier's? Well, I have to leave that up to you as a jury. I've got my own thoughts on it, just as you do. Judges' instructions to a jury are sometimes very simple. You have heard some of them before, one of which I like to quote a lot on this podcast. It's the idea that if you do not believe that a witness is telling the truth about one thing during the course of their sworn testimony, then it is your prerogative as a juror to make a decision to disbelieve all or any portion of that witness's testimony. The point is, don't lie, because if you lie just a little, it taints just about everything else. Vincent Bugliosi points out what Garrison's investigator and Brochier's interrogator Tom Jaffe already knew, that there were moments that either Ferry was feeding Brochier's a line and he was just truthfully repeating it, or Brochier's himself was the author of an untruth. Nevertheless, Jaffe heard things in those conversations that he apparently felt were untrue, regardless of their origin. For these reasons, Garrison in Brochier's had one more witness that may have very well been reinforcing the truth once again about David Ferry's general involvement in the plot to assassinate the president. That Ferry was a willing participant with the responsibility of transporting the assassins out of the country. But at the same time, Garrison also had one more witness that for all the obvious reasons, it should be quite apparent, well, that he could just not put brochures on the stand in the Clay Shaw trial. All the rules of hearsay notwithstanding, Brochier's in the end was considered a crackpot. It was nothing more than a trial crapshoot. And that was from a group of people who were already used to throwing legal Hail Marys in the third quarter, by the way, of the trial game. Still, his testimony is worth listening to, as under any circumstances, whether you believe it or not, because it's still part of the historical record of what happened in New Orleans as part of the Garrison investigation in the Clay Shaw trial. And it's terribly entertaining, if nothing else. The sequence of events is as follows. Sometime in March 1967, a letter identifying brochures as someone that Garrison's investigation may want to talk to landed in Garrison's office. In turn, one of Garrison's investigators, Bill Turner, contacted another one of the team's investigative members, Steve Burton, who was handling inquiries that were going on out on the West Coast. In that March 17th memo to Steve Burton, Bill Turner would ask him to see if he could locate brochures and question him. It's not clear whether Steve Burton made any real efforts at that moment to pursue brochures, but it was a short while later, on July 8, 1968, when, lo and behold, Brochiers shows up on a West Coast television program. 
the Stan Borman Show. Borman was locally famous for bringing a talk radio format to television. Another one of Garrison's West Coast investigators, Steve Jaffe, actually caught the show on television, and her brochures acknowledged that he knew David Ferry and that Ferry had told him all about the plot to assassinate President Kennedy and that he was definitely involved with the assassins. That accelerated things from there. Jaffe would immediately seek to gain an interview with Brochiers, and he, along with Mark Lane, who was out on the West Coast at the time and helping Garrison with the investigation as well, would meet with Brochiers in the first of two California interviews. As I mentioned, Jaffe also would many years later find himself working for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the HSCA, and he then would interview Brochiers himself again. But in that future mode, it would be under oath. That document on what they heard and said in that first interview is not readily at my fingertips, but the details of the second interview are Steve Burton, who had originally received the memo from Bill Turner on March 17th, got the nod once again to perform that second California interview with Brochiers. He did so, and he filed his report on tax day, April 15th, 1966. In the end, Burton would say the inconsistencies are few, and the fact that he knew of so many of the principal figures lends Credibility, in my opinion. Despite all of that, the two interviews were not devoid of bizarre moments, such as when Brochiers commented during the first interview that Lady Bird Johnson actually owned the Carousel Club, rather than Jack Ruby. Burton, overall, would say what Brochier stated in the interview was basically true, although most of it was available by that time based on information that was already readily available to the public realm, perhaps with a possible exception of Oswald being bisexual. Let's finish the sequence of events. A month or so after the television program aired, an article appeared in the L.A. Free Press, chronicling the incredible story that had been carried on the television station the month before. Among the things that were reported was the impact, almost immediately, that the airing of the show had on Brochiers himself. Within a week or so of the television broadcast, he was served with a seven-day eviction notice by his landlord. And whether that was coincidence, or a result of other factors in his life, or directly associated with his television appearance and personal controversy in general, no one knows. But one thing for sure is that, based on what he said later, he began to receive harassing threats from the FBI and other authorities telling him, basically, to keep his mouth shut. Garrison's team would fly brochures to New Orleans, where he would participate in two more formal interviews with Garrison's investigative team. Fred Litwin on his website, provides details on all of this and describes the memos and summarizes these interviews as one big stream of consciousness. (laughs) There there are lots of interesting facts in those two interviews that Litwin brings out. 
but in the interest of time, we are going to skip them and use the remainder of the time in this episode to listen first to Brochier's taping on the Stan Borman Show. As I always say, folks, you just can't write this stuff. So, let's listen to the rest of episode 188 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Lee Harvey Oswald are all in a day's work for the Reverend Raymond Brochiers from the Church of God of Light. Uh, he'll be a, he's accompanied today by the Reverend Jeff Mann, who uh, Raymond Brochiers, uh, Dr. Brochiers told us, is the hippie minister uh, from Long Beach. Both of these gentlemen are sitting here right now, and we're going to be discussing all kinds of things with them, and I can hardly wait for this to begin. Right now, we have a word from Jack Bailey Carpets, then we'll... Uh, Reverend Raymond Brochiers and Reverend Jeff Mann. Uh, first off, I would like to find out uh, where you received your Doctor of Divinity, Reverend Brochiers. Doctor of Divinity from Faith Bible College in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, one of them. Did you attend there physically, or is it a correspondence course? That was a correspondence course. I attended a regular school of theology, uh, Pentecostal, by the way, Lee Bible College, uh, Robert E. Lee Bible College in Cleveland, Tennessee. <laughs> Okay. Uh, did you uh, did you graduate? Did you matriculate yes. from that uh, college? Yes, I, I did a lot of tricks. Uh, <laughs> Reverend Mann, what about you? I've been studying with Reverend Brochures. Do you have a Doctor of Divinity? No, no. Then why do you wear the turned around collar? Uh, you say you're a Reverend. How are you a Reverend without any without any credentials? He does have credentials. Uh, how did you get the credentials? Uh, from studying with Dr. Brochures. No, you just gave him credentials. No, I wasn't just giving him. No, he was I studied with him. But is he an accredited school of theology? Yes, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an instructor with the Credit School of Theology in the state of California in the eyes of uh, Frank and Jordan, our Secretary of State of California. Uh, would you consider yourself to be evangelists? Who are you directing? Both of you, gentlemen. I don't, myself, I don't consider it. I'm not sure how to use a word. Well, usually evangel uh, evangelical ministers are ones that without a particular uh, congregation, they, they move around and they talk to the people in their own locale. We, we have a congregation, and, and uh, please don't put us in the Pentecostal bag. Uh, I was in that for many years. Uh, I love the Pentecostal people, but you cannot sell hellfire damnation because people aren't believing it, because people have become enlightened, and they're uh, waking up to the realization that God is everywhere in you, and he's not a physical entity. And this is what we are bringing people into an awareness. Okay, now how did you get involved with all of these predictions and all of this, uh, this well, clairvoyance? Well, I have, I have uh, had... Uh, I, I came into the full knowledge of my psychic ability several years ago. And uh, I, under various teachers, including Elaine Chambers of the City of Life in New Mexico, uh, Elaine uh, has helped me develop them over the years. And uh, I have been 97% correct in the prophecies that I have received in meditation during, uh, this is my channeling, during meditation. These have come to me, and uh, it's part of a semi-trans state. Who talks to you during this um, time of meditation? I do not hear any voices. Well, how do you come to the conclusion that you do? It comes in through me, and then out, and then I write them out. 
You don't use astrology or numerology or any... No, I do not use astrology. Mm. Not, uh, not that I, I... I certainly have a high regard for uh, astrology. No, I just meant this just comes through yes, you. Yes, it comes through. It comes through. And we've been 97% uh, correct for the past five years. Uh, now, I understand that you have uh, predicted that there's going to be a, a big earth, uh, earthquake, a major earthquake. Very yes, earthquake. Uh, Tuesday on a uh, radio station in this area, we prophesied there would be five days of rolling earthquakes starting Thursday. We have now had the five days of rolling earthquakes. We have? Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Wasn't there one yesterday? Yes, there was. And Remember this morning. I told there was another one this morning, by the way. There was one this morning? Uh, yes, mm -hmm. 2.3 on the Richter scale off the Channel City. Son of a gun. And um, uh, then I said this would climax later on at the end of this month with all the shifting of the fault uh, would climax in a jerking, jolting earthquake that would center uh, off the coast uh, towards Malibu and Santa Monica. And that's going to be a big one, right? Uh, it will do damage and uh, with considerable loss of property. Well, I have here a news release from uh, uh, Dr. Charles Richter. It says, earthquake expert Dr. Charles Richter says the series of small quakes which have been jolting Southern California for the past two weeks are probably not the forerunners of a large tembler which would cause widespread dis destruction. That probably worries me. He says the chances <laughs> of, a, of uh, a warning of a big quake are very remote at this time. Uh, Dr. Richter is famous for his inaccuracy. Well, not only that. Well, I would tend to go along with Dr. Richter before I would tend to go along with a man who says that George Wallace is going to be elected president of the United States by six votes. I did not say that, sir. Who said that? Uh, the spirit. Oh, the spirit. But you put... Now, here's some of the things I that Reverend channel. Raymond Brochier, the channel, has uh, said that is going to happen. Number one, George C. Wallace will be elected president of the United States by six electoral votes. Uh, another death in the Kennedy family, as well as the death of famous close friend, uh, as a famous close friend, Cardinal Cushing. In other words, you are prophesizing the death of Cardinal Cushing. Yes, last year I prophesied the death of Cardinal Ritter and uh, also Cardinal Spellman. Excuse me, when did you make these prophecies? Uh, these these were made on Saturday, uh, the sixth. Uh, it says violent demonstrations and appearances of Vice President Humphrey during the election campaign. Well. Uh, um, there is something later came in on that uh, we uh, received in channeling uh, on the radio station at uh, down south here uh, that uh, there is uh, President uh, Vice President Humphrey's life is in great danger this coming Thursday evening uh, fire day is a danger we see fire around him I don't know if it means he's going to you that know, this is nothing, place. This is really nothing to, to joke about, and it's uh, nothing, it's nothing we're talking about, at all. I think you should be well aware of the implications of what you're saying. We and, are. And uh, I think you should have some basis. In fact, we all know that President Johnson and Vice President Humphrey cannot travel freely around this nation uh, because of the anti-Vietnam feeling that has run rampant throughout the United States. However, to, to prophesy something like this, uh, I... I I, I think it's a little irresponsible on your part, unless you Possibly. really uh, believe uh, this it. Is, this I believe with all my heart. And so, and of course, Elaine has received the same thing, and she is in Canada now. Uh, Reverend Mann, I'd like to bring you into the conversation here. You're just sitting back listening to this. You are what is known as a hippie minister, and you work along with Reverend Brochures. Is that right? Correct. What is your function? Uh, basically, I'm trying to get away from the orthodox type of religious belief as far as you know, coming to church and talking in church. I just go out and uh, associate with people, that's about it. And I found that a lot of uh, so-called hippies, if you want to use that word, uh, really shy away from an orthodox and traditional minister. Well, a lot of the so-called hippies put the and fault that, of the uh, the establishment at the true. foot of the church. But I, I think uh, 
I think a lot of good can be done if you can talk and then if you can get them to listen. I'd like to find out why you decided to hook up with Reverend Brochures after we have a word from West Coast Trade School. We'll be right back. I don't think Okay, we're back again. We have our two uh, uh, unusual um, uh, ministers, uh, Reverend Raymond Brochiers and Reverend Jeff Mann from the Church of God of Light. We'll be back to them in just a moment. Right now we check in with Ted Myers in the newsroom. Uh, it's 18 minutes after 1 o'clock. Uh, here's something else. It says uh, that you have been talking with Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, how recently did you talk with Lee Harvey Oswald uh, when he was in the Beyond? Now he's course been dead for five years now. So uh, this was done in a, a um, seance as some of the uh, traditional people prefer to call it. Uh, I was the I was the channel and the message came through me to the medium. There were several mediums in the room and this is the message that came forth and the reason they chose me was because of my close association with uh, the late David Ferry who had property belonging to Lee Harvey Oswald at the time that I knew David and so I had come in uh, I had come in contact with some of Lee Harvey Oswald's clothing and so they felt and and metal objects so they felt that I would be a good channel and these are the things that came through and uh, of course it's quite controversial well I don't think the fact that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald very possibly did not even fire a gun that day is too controversial but I think the thing that's controversial is that you talk to him from the beyond and that you so he talked to you from the beyond, actually, or talked yes. to us through you. Yes. And I'll just read one paragraph of this. I can't go through the whole thing because it's too long. But it says, I raised the rifle to aim at the target, and I suddenly realized that the target was the president of my country, my president. I couldn't go through with it. Then the motorcade came into sight. I dropped the rifle. I was wearing gloves. That accounts for the lack of fingerprints. And I started to run. And then Bill said, shoot the so-and-so or you'll be shot. I did not care. I just ran out of the book depository, and then I knew that others had hit him. I ran. I ran for my life, and it goes on and on. Uh, I don't know, man. You, uh, may I say something? You, you deny psychic phenomena, sir? Uh, no, I don't deny psychic phenomena, but I really don't think that you have talked to Lee Harvey Oswald. I really don't believe that you can, uh, you can prophesize correctly uh, and knowledgeably all the things that you've said. I don't want to call you a charlatan because I have no basis in fact for calling you names, but I can't believe that uh, that you are uh, telling the truth. May I, I ask Je uh, the Reverend uh, Mann uh, a question? Now, you uh, uh, are associated with the Reverend Groshi. How do you feel about all this? You said that there were some areas in which you two did not have the same uh, kind of uh, way of working in your religion. Uh, do you do you also believe in the uh, voices and? Uh, uh, I, won't, I won't be I'll be won't be skeptical about it. I believe it possibly can't happen. That's me but too. But it's yeah. very hard for one who hasn't ever had it happen to them to really believe in it. Oh, yeah. now I'll go along with you. I will and, believe it possibly but, can't happen. But before I'll be a skeptic and say that uh, it can't happen, and I'm not too sure. I think I. I'll say as open-minded as I can about I'm ready for anything myself. Yeah, because they I mean, said the Wright brothers weren't going to fly, and they did it. And I think anybody is very hypocritical to be a skeptic. Yeah, but flying is a scientific fact. No. Well, it wasn't then. You know, yeah. it was, you know, it, it was, was then. It just wasn't discovered. That's what I mean. Okay. We'll be back, both these gentlemen, in just a moment. We have a word from Troy Interiors right now, and then we'll return.
and talk with Reverend Raymond Brochures and Reverend Jeff Mann. We're going to go to the telephones. There's a lot of other things we can talk about. Oh, there's, there's one more prediction <clears throat> that I failed to give, and I would like to give it. It says, with the war in Vietnam ending with withdrawal of the majority of American forces to the Saigon area, when do you uh, uh, anticipate that will happen? Uh, this will be uh, after the election of the new president. Shortly after the election? Yes, shortly after. Maybe in December or... Yes, uh, Mr. Johnson will do this. This will be his, uh, uh, his uh, farewell to the nation. Mm -hmm. He's bringing the boys home and all That's that. beyond the realm of possibility. All right, gentlemen, let's go to the telephones now. Just put the earphones on. And you can hear the other side of the conversation. This is Tempo, Stan Borman, and Jan Sterling. Hi. Hi. How are you? I got a pain this in my is, left uh, shoulder. <laughs> I don't... Uh, I don't think Stan, you realize that uh, the Reverend Brochures made a very important statement just a little while ago. He said that he was a close associate of David Ferry. He didn't say that yet, sir, but I was going to ask him about this, but as long as you brought it up, go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, isn't it true, Reverend uh, Brochures, that you were a, a roommate of David Ferry? Yes, for a time in uh, New Orleans. I did say this earlier, Mr. Borman. Uh, I didn't hear you. Yeah. Well, well, when you uh, talked to David Ferry, uh, I guess you're probably aware of the Garrison investigation. And Garrison had said that David Ferry was one of the most important in individuals in the assassination conspiracy. Did David Ferry ever discuss the assassination with you? Uh, when we first uh, met, I did not know who he was. Yeah. And after about a week, uh, I knew who he was because here was all these weird characters coming around harassing the life out of him. Yeah. And uh, they were from Mr. Garrison's office. Well, you and, sure uh, they were from they, Garrison's office? Yes, so they identified themselves, and he said they were from Garrison's office. He said Mr. Garrison was constantly pulling him in. And then all, there were also people from uh, uh, mysterious sources harassing him. Uh-huh. And uh, he said he feared for his life, and, I, and so we went into it in great depth. Well, and he was in Houston at the time that Mr. Garrison had him in Houston with the airplane awaiting, but they took the flight from Dallas to, uh, they were going to try and make it, and they did not make it. They crashed off Corpus Christi. Oh, and you mean David Ferry? The, no, the, the assassins were uh, crashed off Corpus Christi and were killed. But so who were the assassins? Who were the assassins, if you know that they crashed off of uh, Corpus Christi? I'm not at liberty to say that. But sir. you know who they are? I am not at liberty to say that. But, you, but you know who they are. You're not at liberty to say who they are, but you know who they are. I'm going to play Senator McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy. I take the Fifth Amendment. I certainly hope you don't play Senator Joseph well, McCarthy. On can I ask you a question? Yes, go ahead. Well, you just said they, the assassins, crashed off Corpus Christi. Yes. How did you find that out? From David Ferry? Yes. So that David Ferry was, in fact, involved with these... Yes, he was. He was. Oh, there's no... Yes, David, Dave admitted that. And uh, he did not commit suicide. He didn't? No. What did, he what was happened? murdered. He was murdered? He was murdered. So Jim Garrison is correct in his yes. Uh, analysis. Yes. But I, I'm not going to go, like Mr. Garrison said, with CIA, because uh, I, that's too far for me to believe. Well, whether you believe it or not, Mr. Garrison allegedly has the information at his disposal, and he has gone one step, one step, one step, and has come up with the conclusions that he's come up with. But you, I feel, sir, uh, with the information that you gave on this program this afternoon, notwithstanding all of your predictions, but the fact that you were a roommate of David yes. Ferry... Uh, and that you say that he admitted that he was involved with the assassination and that the assassins crashed in Corpus Christi, Texas. Yes. Uh, but also, I, uh, that he knows I think that you were. should be subpoenaed and go to New Orleans. No, I, 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 now listen, this has been tried once. And oh, really? Uh, yes. Uh, Reverend Brochier? Yes. Uh, 
Didn't you ever have any uh, information from uh, David Perry about uh, Edgar Eugene Bradley and whether or not he was in Dallas? Uh, I declined to comment. Well, did he tell you anything about it? Did you don't he tell have you to anything say at all, sir? Yeah, we're not asking for the for the particular uh, quotes, but did he tell you anything at all about Edgar Eugene Bradley? He told me something about uh, Dr. McIntyre's organization. Mm-hmm. Did he say anything to you about Bradley? You don't have to say what it was. Sir, I think uh, you've opened up a whole uh, Pandora's yeah, box here. Yeah, you've here. opened up something <clears throat> I don't want to get into. And, uh, no, I guarantee I will not let it go. We have to do a commercial right now. We'll be back okay, with the Reverend Sharon, Brochier. Can I just say one more thing? Very quickly, sir. Could you ask the Reverend if he was ever arrested for threatening the life of President Johnson? Yes, I will. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. You can think about that. That'll be the question that you can answer as soon as we come back from the 3060 News with John Berger and a word from Mondo Connie. Forget the predictions, let's talk about reality. The extraordinarily candid and factual documentary that shocked the world with its forthright view of contemporary... Okay, we're back again. We have the Reverend Raymond Brochiers from the Church of God of Light with us and Reverend Jeff Mann, and we have just uh, stumbled upon something which we feel is probably one of the most important interviews that we've ever had on this program, seriously in the 10 months that we've been on the air. We were going to talk about prophecies and predictions, but we're no longer going to talk about that. We're going to concentrate on the Kennedy assassination and about the, uh, about the events that surrounded the Kennedy assassination. Now, it has been established as a fact that Reverend Brochiers was a roommate of David Ferry. It has been established as a fact, or allegedly, uh, David Ferry confessed to Reverend Brochiers that he was involved in the assassination of John Kennedy, that the assassins, according to David Ferry, crashed in Corpus Christi, Texas. And the last phone call, uh, just a moment ago, the gentleman asked if you were ever arrested uh, in connection with the Kennedy assassination. No. I, I, would, I would like to say one thing, Mr. Bowman. You said he confessed. He never confessed to me, sir. I mean, when you're talking with one another, it's just a matter-of-fact conversation. It's not a matter of confessing. He didn't say, Oh, Father, forgive me, please, I've done this. I don't, no. mean, I don't mean that type of a, of a confession. Oh. I mean that he told you he just told what me happened. Per- he just told me facts which uh, scared me. All right, fine. Now, to answer the question that the gentleman posed in the telephone, we would like to get an answer at this time. I would really like to know who that gentleman was. We have no idea. Calls because, come in anonymously. Uh, well, uh, well, the gentleman asked, if, to rephrase the question, yes, I think please. he asked, uh, if you had been arrested in connection with a threat on President Johnson's life, and, not, and it did not have to do with the Kennedy assassination as I heard, it was with a threat on President Johnson's life. Um, at the particular time, this person seems to be very knowledgeable, and no one in Southern California, no one in California knows this except uh, authorities. Um, one of the reasons I came out to the uh, West Coast to escape all of this back in the I must South. say you're very honest about this. Uh, well, I, I want to escape. I want to escape. I come out here uh, for peace and quiet, and I've had very little of it, really, because things keep popping up to me. But um, <clears throat> I, uh, when I was down in New Orleans, I became very upset when I learned certain information uh, concerning certain officials in our government. And I did... Uh, make several speeches and uh, statements to the effect uh, that it could be taken as a threat to the life of uh, our esteemed president. Um, And I was subsequently arrested, and I was subsequently arraigned, and I pleaded insanity. It didn't get me anywhere, but 
it, I was able to convince them of my love of my country, of which Reverend Mann will attest to. I am one of the greatest patriots in this country. I don't Jeff, Jeff thinks I lay it on too heavy. But uh, I certainly did not mean it in the uh, way that it was taken by the people at the time that I was going to myself go out and uh, uh, kill Mr. Johnson because I would never do anything like that because I did not believe in killing. Uh, but I did make statements that could have been considered threatening, yes. And I, you, were, you, were, you were, in fact, arrested by the federal government? I was arrested by the uh, United States Secret Service, uh, the federal marshals. I was arranged by uh, federal judge Christenberry in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, I pleaded insanity. Uh, I didn't get away with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, when you say you didn't get away with it, but you were released. I, I was subsequently released because I convinced them uh, how I meant the statement. Mm. Uh, I want to dismissed? May I, may I point out something to you? Uh, Mr. Johnson has received over uh, 4,000 death threats in uh, the last three years. And this is phenomenal because no other president has received this amount of death threats. And this is through mail and things of this nature. So, uh, yeah, but a lot of those are coup calls. Now, here we have a man here who, uh, by your own admission, sir, uh, was arrested because of inflammatory statements you made against the chief executive of this land. Yes, I, I was arrested uh, for statements and, and some of my writing. Well, what was it, in essence, that you said, sir? I just felt, I, I stated that, um, here I go again, <laughs> I might be arrested. Uh, 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 but anyhow, I stated that uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, the person who is responsible directly or indirectly for the assassination of our beloved President Kennedy, should be put to death. We'll be back in just a moment after this word from Herod Extra Dry. Long Beach. 
And I went, the first thing I did in Long Beach, I went immediately to the police department and I talked to uh, Lieutenant uh, John Cowan of the Long Beach Police Department uh, in relation to this because that is the type of ministry I uh, am involved in. It's working with people in the ghettos and kids roles and things of that nature. Not help our damage, just try to help them the best I can. And uh, I told John all. And uh, uh, Lieutenant Cowan, rather, excuse me. And um, that was it. And of course, I, um, I notified the people in Los Angeles and the governmental agency that where I was living in Long Beach. But I was told uh, that I could be put away in a psychiatric institution for the rest of my life unless I kept my mouth shut. And then was that from the federal government? Uh, yes, this was from the federal government in the Bay Area. Yeah, wow. We've had a lot of people on this program. We've had Mark Lane on this program. We've had uh, Dr. Carl McIntyre on this program. We've had Ken Jones on this program. We've had an awful lot of people who were directly involved, and a lot of questions have been raised about these people. And you are probably one of the most important people that we've ever had on. Uh, wow. Uh, there are, like, many questions I have to ask you. Uh, I don't know whether you're going to answer them or not. How long did you spend in New Orleans? Um, Years, days, months, weeks. It was, it was in the uh, month category. Did you ever make place job? No, I did not make place job. And uh, one thing I want to point out, can I clear something on David Ferry? Everyone is uh, maligning him as savages. Uh, savages. He was a, he was a um, homosexual. Uh, he was a scarred physically, in addition to being mentally scarred, he was physically scarred. I know, I had no hair. And uh, he wore this uh, flaming red hay, which made him look like a king. And, uh, the guy and uh, he was a scared How long were you in Just uh, for a little over a week and a half. Because after, because he moved on to another guy. He just visited around uh, this person, that person. Okay, let's go to the call. Yeah, I just asked uh, the Reverend, uh, this man, if you, is this me to you? Or uh, this? Yes, yes. I gather from your Does face. Does it change yes. any of your opinions at all about the Reverend Bush's? Oh, no. Although we do want to go to the phones, gentlemen, so we can pick up the earphones again and see what ought to happen. Maybe you've uh, recruited a few more. I think you might find that an awful lot of people will uh, come to your defense, but we'll find out. This is Temple, Stan Borman, and Nancy Sterling. Hello, Stan. Yes. Yeah, I had a question for the Reverend. I think there was kind of a what happened about this issue, and I just want some clarification. Right. Was it, according to the Reverend, David Ferry or the voice from beyond the spirit world that indicated that the assassin crashed uh, off the coast of Corpus Christi. Is that something that David Ferry indicated? Uh, according to what the Reverend said, uh, that that was David Ferry in person when he was alive when he said that. Yes. It's, it's not in this article, sir. Yes, but it was in fact Mr. Ferry who did give you that information. Yes. Yes, yes. In other words, that happened in the flesh, and the other information from uh, Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly came from the beyond. Thank you, that's all. Thank you very much. Fine, thank you, that's all. Take it back to Mr. Bowman, the words in the private contract. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to episode 188 of JFK. The Enduring Secret.